Welcome to this podcast in this series on tech disputes. I'm Jonathan Turnbull, a partner specialising in intellectual property at Herbert Smith Freehills, and I'll be discussing trade secret disputes today with my colleagues, Jessica Wellborn and Rachel Montagnon. As technology continues to be at the forefront of companies' commercial strategies and investments, there has been a real increasing need for effective protection of the fruits of this investment so that companies can harness the competitive advantage it gives them. Given the issues in patenting of software innovations and algorithms and the limitations on other available intellectual property rights, such as copyright, companies are increasingly turning to trade secrets to protect these vital assets. Having said that, any effective intellectual property strategy must take a holistic view and utilise trade secrets appropriately and effectively. And I suppose what that leads us to is the first key question, Rachel. What are trade secrets? Well, John, a legislative definition of a trade secret was introduced to the UK via the EU Trade Secrets Directive, which was implemented in the UK by the Trade Secrets Enforcement Regulations in 2018, at a time when the UK was still a member of the EU, of course, but this is still fully part of the UK law post-Brexit. But trade secrets weren't an alien concept to the UK before this. In fact, common law previously recognised the concept of trade secrets within the law of confidential information, and it continues to do so. So the directive in the UK regulations define what information must be in order to be defined as a trade secret and to benefit from the protection of the legislation. And to fit within the trade secret definition, the information must have three characteristics. It must be secret, have commercial value because it is secret, and have been subject to reasonable steps under the circumstances taken by the person lawfully in control of the information to keep it secret. So consequently, the protection and remedies afforded by the directive and the UK regulations are centred on the requirement to not only keep the information confidential, but also a demonstration of the steps that have been taken to keep it so. In contrast, the UK common law identifies confidential information by assessing the nature of the information, whether it's got the quality of confidence, the necessary required quality, the circumstances in which it's imparted, including the relationship between the parties, and for it to be protected under common law, there has to have been a breach of confidence with unauthorised use or disclosure, even if it's just threatened, which has or will cause harm to the owner of the information. And after much consultation, the UK decided it would keep both types of protection, the confidential information rights under common law, alongside those protections provided by this new Trade Secrets Directive. And these can be enforced in parallel and remedies granted in relation to both things in one action. So where the common law provides wider remedies than those provided under the regulations, a trade secret holder can apply for remedies under the common law of confidentiality, either in addition or as an alternative to the remedies provided under the trade secrets regulations. And there was a case last year in the Intellectual Property Enterprise Court, Trailfinders and Travel Councillors, which confirmed that the equitable duty of confidence is not affected by the EU Trade Secrets Directive, but in his judgment, Mr Justice Hacon described the Trade Secrets Directive's definition of a trade secret as now being the best guide to the distinction between information that's confidential and that that's not. And this suggests that the protection of confidential information is now more dependent on the application of reasonable steps than the nature of the information itself, perhaps. But it'll be interesting to see how other courts interpret this. Thanks, Rachel. The increase in the number of questions we have been receiving from clients over the past few years on breach of confidence and on trade secrets is really noticeable. As I've already mentioned, this has been driven by the need of tech companies needing to protect their innovation, key business information 
data and business methods, which are critical to their business. It is in this context that several countries have been reviewing the protections that are offered by confidential information and in relation to trade secrets. The EU has harmonised protection via the Trade Secrets Directive and the US has revisited this with the Defend Trade Secrets Act. There have been many well-publicised disputes over trade secrets in recent years and these have been in many jurisdictions. A couple of noticeable ones are the 2020 dispute between Mars and its rival JAB Holdings, the owner of Pret-a-Manger, in which Mars alleged, and JAB strongly denied, that a former executive stole more than 6,000 confidential company documents by downloading them and then passing them to the owner of Pret-a-Manger and Panera Bread, sparking a rare public battle between privately held food multinationals. In a different context, there have been trade secret disputes in relation to battery technologies for electric vehicles. And an example of this is in SK Innovations and LG Chem in the US, in which earlier this year, the US International Trade Commission held that SK Innovation had misused its rival LG Chem's trade secrets. Reuters reported that LG Chem allegedly alleged that SK Innovation had stolen trade secrets by poaching over 80 of their employees. The ITC found for LG Chem and issued a 10-year exclusion order prohibiting imports of SK Innovation's lithium batteries into the US, although also holding that some components of these batteries could nevertheless still be imported. SK Innovation, in response, threatened to close its US factory unless the decision was overturned, as it could have been by President Biden, who has publicly supported the electric vehicle industry. In the end, the companies came to a settlement in April of this year, setting aside the ITC decisions. Another important point to, to mention here in the context of the US is that proceedings before the ITC have become increasingly used in the intellectual property sphere, so both in, in relation to patents and also in relation to confidential information and trade secrets, where civil proceedings might have been historically used. And in many instances, this is because of the speed of relief that the ITC can grant. And there are many other examples, aren't there, Jess? Yes, absolutely. People have likely seen the news reports over the past year or so showing activity and allegations of trade secret theft out of the US and against foreign actors. Um, there's perhaps just two examples I'll mention here because they demonstrate just how easily access can be gained into a corporation but also the repercussions for business if they inadvertently use a third party's trade secrets. So the first one was a criminal case in the US. Here, a non-US citizen was found to have funneled highly sensitive information from some of the world's most powerful defence companies out of the US. So he worked with two other individuals. One of the individuals would send phishing emails to employees at target companies usually purporting to be from a colleague or someone else in the industry. And the employee at the target company would unfortunately click through on the phishing emails. So once getting the employee to a website under their control, the infiltrators could then link to their own system and begin installing malware, which gave them remote access to that company's network, including in this situation directories containing relevant trade secrets. So once they were in the systems, they could copy the file directories. And in this case, it was um, information, confidential information, trade secrets, really, about military planes and technology. 
and the US have claimed that this allowed another state to develop a competing plane using that technology. So here the trade secrets were able to be stolen because the phishing emails worked. To, to put it bluntly, the routing was through the employees sort of falling into the trap of, of the phishing emails. Uh, just another case I just wanted to mention quickly as it shows the ramifications of trade secret misappropriation and how detrimental it could be to the new employing company uh, and why it's in employers' best interest to do all that they can to prevent their business inadvertently using a third party's trade secrets. Um, so John's already mentioned the uh, US International Trade Commission, that it's another example using them. The ITC sanctioned a non-US company stealing trade secrets. So they ruled that the company poached an employee from an American chemical company in order to steal that company's proprietary information. And in this case, it was a proprietary method for making a so-called tachifier, so chemical compounds used in formulating adhesives. The ITC handed down a 10-year ban on the import of any products made using these trade secrets for 10 years, and the US Supreme Court then declined to hear this decision. So US law reports have said that really the Supreme Court, in declining to hear the case, in effect, has said that the ITC has the power to prohibit international companies from shipping products to the US that have been made using trade secrets stolen from the US. And further, and really quite importantly, it doesn't matter if that misappropriation occurred entirely outside of the US. So that just sort of demonstrates the other side of the coin. As an employing business, there are multitude of reasons why you want to ensure your employees are not using a third party's trade secrets. So with an increasingly heavy reliance on trade secrets in various sectors, particularly the tech sector, it's really important for employees and employers alike to be aware of what trade secrets are, how they need to be protected, and the ramifications if a company does use a third party's trade secrets. Thanks, Jess. I suppose this reliance on trade secrets comes as, as no real surprise. The drivers for this increased reliance on trade secrets has, at least in part, arisen from the shortfalls in the legal basis or law of the other forms of intellectual property rights in that they have been providing inadequate protection that I've already mentioned. It is also, though, reflecting how technology has increased the pace of change in industries and is leading to increasingly short product life cycles, and the rapid pace of product development that could be completely out of step with those other forms of intellectual property protection. Provided it is the type of innovation which is amenable to protection as a trade secret, then the lack of formalities and therefore reduction in costs compared to patent filing or delay in obtaining protection and the speed at which trade secrets can be enforced are also critical factors. Trade secrets can be an immediate and flexible tool to protect innovations, but should only be considered if it's part of an innovation that can in fact be kept secret. Please do not think of trade secrets and confidential information as a panacea. They only form a part, but a very important part, of an effective, holistic IP strategy. I agree, John. And when you're considering whether trade secrets or patent protection is most appropriate for you, you need to think of several factors. You have to look at the nature of the information, whether you need to keep it secret, whether it meets the requirements to be confidential, what we talked about before, or trade secrets, whether you really would be happy to make the invention public at all. So in that case, then you, if you were, then you could think about patenting. 
And but then you'd have to think about whether it required met the requirements of patenting. And length of protection is also a big factor as well, because confidential information can obviously be protected forever, but only as long as it's kept confidential. Whereas with patents, you're only going to get a 20 year protection, but the enforcement is going to be a whole lot easier and you get an exclusive right and strict liability, whereas you don't get that with trade secrets. It's much easier to exploit through licensing your patent rights and, and really more difficult with trade secrets because of the problems about keeping things confidential. And as John's mentioned, the costs are very different, very much more expensive to get a patent and pretty manageable to do trade secrets. So it very much depends on how you plan to use or license your innovation or information and how fast things, as John said, are changing in particular as to whether you might want to go for patents or rely on trade secrets. But one thing I did really want to mention is that businesses really do have to think a lot about the protection of data and trade secrets often with whatever we're talking about, it really is a form of data. And you have to think about the obligations, not only on the data that you're creating, but also some of the data you're using. You have to think about that as well and, and whether there are any contractual restrictions on data you're using from third parties. But also think a bit about the potential intellectual property protections for data. And whilst trade secrets are really pretty ideal for protecting data, you have to remember that there are some other ways of doing it. And you can use copyright depending on how you're going to arrange the data, let's say, whether you're going to put it in a database or it might be something to do with the way you've recorded or expressed, it, expressed the data. Uh, but that will only protect you against somebody copying it. Database rights, as I said, are one way of protecting data, but that's really protecting the database itself rather than the content of that database. And then with trademarks, well, some data may be trademarks and then you can use trademark law against that, but it's pretty difficult. Sometimes that might be in connection with the value of the data being connected to the name to which it's being attached and having cases on that to do with indices and things like that. And then, of course, you've got patents again, which we just talked about. But probably the most powerful one is trade secrets which will protect the data itself from use or disclosure without permission. But as technology develops, we do have to think a bit about AI and algorithms and, and the things that are being used to interpret the data and use these trade secrets and how these can be protected. And there isn't a huge amount of protection for software under traditional IP rights other than using copyright. And IP policy and law is currently grappling with the fundamental issues in this area. As you can see from the recent consultations by the major patent offices, including the UK IPO and the decisions about AI and how it can be used and, and what rights should be given to the products of AI. And the recent decisions from the IPOs worldwide not to allow AI to be cited as the inventor of a patent, the DABIS applications. So looking at all this, these difficulties, it seems that trade secrets may be the most reliable source of protection for the time being, at least, John. So... What we can take from here is that we've established that trade secrets are particularly suited to the protection of fast moving innovations and key business data. But how should businesses go about setting up systems and processes to ensure that they can maintain secrecy and confidentiality so that they're able to enforce their rights should there be a leak? So I would say what this has all been leading up to really is the importance of having a trade secret strategy, an effective strategy that's consistently implemented across the business, perhaps allowing for jurisdictional differences in the treatment of trade secrets, but one that's really adhered to, that will really place a business in the best position possible to maximise the life and preserve, increase the value of its trade secrets, as well as, really importantly, being able to act swiftly 
in the event of unauthorised use or access of the trade secrets, which is really vital to stopping dissemination. So when advising clients, we, we tend to break a trade secret strategy down into several component parts. The first one is identifying, really identifying continuously the trade secrets, the key and valuable material. So here there needs to be an assessment of whether material is indeed capable of being protected as a trade secret and um, perhaps having an electronic trade secrets registry. So this can vary from one end of the spectrum, keeping basic high level notes with no detail at all of what those trade secrets comprise to at the other end, the more sophisticated end, having a secure platform. So there's various suppliers out there which use blockchain technology, for example, to store IP in a decentralised method. And essentially here the document's not encrypted, so it can't be reversed, um, but a hash is created. And this method can be really useful because it can provide a timestamp, so useful for evidencing ownership and dates, which can become really necessary or useful in legal proceedings. It sort of aids in providing a good evidentiary basis for the existence of that trade secret. And just a final advantage with having a, a secure platform as I, of the, the type I just mentioned is one that Rachel went over at the beginning. So the trade secrets directive requires that in order to, to garner protection that trade secrets are subject to reasonable steps to keep it secret. It's quite a low threshold but it um, is expected that a system such as the one I just mentioned would support that requirement. So after identification comes protecting and securing. So increasing connectivity and modern means of communication and the real speed by which unauthorised disclosures can be disseminated to such a breadth of potential audience. This all increases the potential for harm to an organisation. So now more than ever, securing and protecting trade secrets is paramount. So, I mean, protection measures can be broken down into various subsets. You've got physical controls, electronic controls, legal contractual ones, um, and even more holistic sort of operational ones. And paradoxically, we find that the practical challenges of protecting the secrets are often more difficult to overcome than the legal ones. So for protecting and securing our trade secrets, there's a multitude of available options. And just to canter through a few, so with physical controls, um, I think businesses need to be aware of physical copies that contain trade secrets information, ensure that a limited number of copies are made. It's perhaps obvious, but really ensuring that documents are marked appropriately as confidential and having, have a uniform system for marking secret documents, limiting disclosure of trade secrets and confidential information to only those individuals who have a genuine need to know that information, and just you know, reminding employees and consultants of general precautions, so not getting those documents out on public transport and in public places. Electronic controls are highly important as well, so restricting access where appropriate with technical measures. So if trade secrets are uh, contained on USB, making sure that that USB is protected with a password, having firewalls where information is sent over email, always password protecting them, um, and being very careful, of course, where material is sent or saved. At Herbert Smith Freehills, for example, we have rules on sending information to personal email accounts and using third party applications. So if I try and send a document from my Herbert Smith Freehills account to my personal Hotmail account, a box will pop up and I have to state the reason for doing so. 
And we also have um, rules and guidance around using Dropbox and Google Docs and things. So all of that is very sensible to have in place. And just using, there's lots of software that's available for businesses, such as monitoring and detection software and encryption software, just really taking advantage of what's out there on the market. And just briefly on legal contractual protections too, employees, consultants, they're all very mobile, particularly in certain sectors, such as the technology sector. I think John might, perhaps you can talk to this later, but for new or nascent industries where there's a limited number of employees with that requisite knowledge, it's really important for their employers that trade secrets are not shared with competitors when they move around. So have on the stocks model confidentiality clauses for service providers and consultants, but they always need to be adapted to that specific case in hand. And employment contracts, of course, as well, should have confidentiality clauses, restrictive covenants post-termination, um, and just warning employees of liability for disclosure of trade secrets and using non-disclosure agreements where that's appropriate. So as I've sort of alluded to just earlier, the best form of protection is to limit the release of that confidential information. But if sharing is essential, putting in place a carefully drafted non-disclosure agreement. And then um, there's two more stages to, which I would say two more stages to a trade secret strategy. The penultimate one is detecting and assessing. So detecting unauthorized use or misappropriation of trade secrets quickly is really vital. Time is of the essence. And it's not just so that the business can limit the onward disclosure of the trade secret and try to prevent its loss of confidentiality and its entering into public domain or to competitors, but also from a reputational and liability point of view. So, for example, in the UK, if personal data is disclosed to the public, a notification will need to be made to the regulators, there might be fines, litigation, loss of business, etc. And I think perhaps John can talk to this later, but with enforcement, um, swift and decisive action is, is mandatory, for example, if you want to apply for an interim injunction. So for detecting trade secrets most misappropriation, I'd say you can break it down into internal detection and external detection. And the former is always going to be preferable. So internally, recommended electronic controls and software. If you've got that appropriate software in place, it should notify the business immediately upon um, flagging a suspected breach. So, for example, is an employee sending large amounts of information outside of expected circles or downloading the same? The technology is there to track and detect this sort of activity, so it really should be implemented and used by businesses. And then there's the external flags. Perhaps an ex-employee's new employer, their activities might be suspicious perhaps bringing out a very similar product, or as just mentioned, the worst case, well, one of the worst cases perhaps is detection by a regulatory authority or publication in the marketplace of your data and becoming informed this way. So you really want to detect internally in order to be in the best position to get on top of that situation. And then the final stage, which is just as important in a comprehensive, effective trade secret strategy is enforcement. John, I think, what's your sort of experience and views on this? Hi, I just absolutely agree with you, Jess. Um, enforcement is indeed a critical component here. For tech companies, there is almost invariably a need to ensure that as soon as any breach of confidence or misuse of a trade secret has been identified, that there is rapid enforcement. This is to mitigate the risk of any further dissemination of the confidential information or the risk that will enter the public domain. 
If that's no longer possible, then it is possible to obtain compensation for that misuse. However, in most cases, monetary compensation or damages will be an inadequate or inferior remedy, particularly where the trade secret is at the heart of a tech company's innovation or is something that provides it with its unique position or product offering. In the UK and in many other jurisdictions, it is possible to obtain injunctions at short notice to stop such dissemination or misuse. However, it is important to recognise that the procedure requirements for obtaining these interim injunctions differ uh, between the various countries. And this is because the requirements for them are determined by the national procedural law or rules. These interim injunctions can, though, be very effective and severe measures that can be taken against a party that has misappropriated a trade secret or misused confidential information. As I already touched upon, monetary compensation for misuse of a trade secret or breach of confidence, where this has resulted the information entering the public domain, is possible. However, the courts approach this issue, whether that's in the UK or elsewhere, by looking to provide the party who has suffered this breach or misuse with damages for which the law will require you to establish a connection between the misuse and the damage cause. And this indeed can lead to debates around the foreseeability or reasonableness of your claiming in such circumstances or provide you with an account of the wrongdoer's profits. However, in both instances, these are imperfect approximations as to the loss that has been suffered. And in many instances, at least in the eyes of the person who has lost their trade secret or suffered you know, the loss of confidence in their confidential information, they will feel that this does not fully account for the impact of what they have indeed suffered. Thanks, John. And one of the key areas for enforcement in the current innovation market is employees too, don't you think? That's right, Rachel. Uh, and it was also mentioned by Jess, in the tech sector, and particularly in cases where traditional industries are being disrupted by the tech sector, there is a real skill shortage. There will be only a very limited number of people who have a strong grasp of the technology advances that are relevant and who understand the relevant industry as well. This inevitably leads to there being a critical and small number of key employees or contractors to a particular business, whether they are operating on their own, in collaboration or in partnerships. And this supply and demand constraint means that these people are in very high demand in the marketplace. They will hold a significant amount of know-how and they therefore will be extremely desirable to any competitor. As a consequence, it is essential that careful thought is given in an employment context as to the practical restrictions that could be put around the sharing of key data and knowledge and how that information could be protected during their employment or contractual term and, just as importantly, how you deal with it when they leave, particularly when they leave to go to a competitor. This is a very complex issue, particularly as you cannot restrict uh, what employees and contractors are taking uh, in the sense of their own knowledge and skill, which they learn whilst working from you, uh, as compared to effectively the misappropriation of, of a trade secret or, or use of confidential information. And I think here it's, it's my colleague, Christine Young, who is very well versed on this and could dis discuss this topic at, at great length. 
And it certainly is an issue that needs to be and generally is uh, on tech companies' radars. On that cautionary note, I think that finishes our whistle-stop saw of trade secrets in tech disputes. I very much enjoyed discussing this with Rachel and Jess and hope that you will join us again for the next episode in this series.